invite you to turn in your Bibles to the last book of the Bible, the book of Revelation. Revelation chapter 10, we will be reading the entire chapter as we continue our study of this book. Revelation chapter 10. The heading of uh, my Bible, which isn't inspired, but it's what my Bible has in there. Maybe yours has this too. It says the angel and the little scroll. The question, of course, is who is this angel and uh, what is this little scroll? Well, we're going to look at that together this morning. Revelation chapter 10, beginning at verse 1. Then I saw another mighty angel coming down from heaven, wrapped in a cloud with a rainbow over his head. And his face was like the sun, and his legs like pillars of fire. He had a little scroll open in his hand, and he set his right foot on the sea and his left foot on the land. And he called out with a loud voice like a lion roaring. When he called out, the seven thunders sounded. And when the seven thunders had sounded, I was about to write, but I heard a voice from heaven saying, Seal up what the seven thunders have said, and do not write it down. And the angel whom I saw standing on the sea and on the land raised his right hand to heaven and swore by him who lives forever and ever who created heaven and earth and what is in it and the earth and what is in it and the sea and what is in it that there would be no more delay. But that in the days of the trumpet call to be sounded by the seventh angel, the mystery of God would be fulfilled just as he announced to his servants the prophets. Then the voice that I had heard from heaven spoke to me again saying, go, Take the scroll that is open in the hand of the angel who is standing on the sea and on the land. So I went to the angel and told him to give me the little scroll. And he said to me, take and eat it. It will make your stomach bitter, but in your mouth it will be sweet as honey. And I took the little scroll from the hand of the angel and ate it. It was sweet as honey in my mouth, but when I had eaten it, my stomach was made bitter. And I was told you must again prophesy about many peoples and nations, and languages, and kings. It is by the grace of God that our eyes have been opened to see what will happen one day. Sadly, there are many people who don't know this, many people who go blissfully throughout life without ever thinking about the fact that one day, a day of judgment, a final day of judgment, is coming. God has opened our eyes as Christians to to see this, uh, to, to know this. We are not hurtling aimlessly through this universe. Life is not one big endless cycle that will never stop. We know as Christians that one day Jesus Christ will come and he will judge all who do not have saving faith in him. Now we don't know when that day will be. It could be today. That would be amazing. It could be a thousand years from now. We don't know. But we do know that it's coming And one of the things that I really appreciate about the book of Revelation is that that Revelation gives us both comfort and instruction as we wait for that day. 
In other words, Revelation says to us, here's the comfort that you should have as a Christian as you wait for that day of judgment. And it also says to us, Christian, here is how you are to live as you wait for that day of judgment. Let me explain to you a little about what I'm, what I'm saying. Over the last couple of weeks, we've been looking at the first um, six of the seven trumpets. In, in chapter 8, it was trumpets uh, 1 through 4. In chapter 9, it was uh, trumpets 5 and 6. Now, as we come to chapter 10 this morning, if you've been here the last few weeks, what we expect is that now we will hear about the seventh trumpet. We've just heard about one through six in the last two chapters. We come to chapter 10. We expect that this is going to be the seventh trumpet. But the seventh trumpet isn't blown until the end of chapter 11. Instead, you have this this pause. You have this break before the seventh trumpet is blown. Trumpets one through six, then a long pause, and then trumpet seven. Now, if you were here when we were looking at the um, seals a number of weeks ago, you might remember that it was the same thing. Chapter 6 contains the first six seals, but then chapter 7, instead of being the seventh seal, there is once again this pause, and we don't see the seventh seal until chapter 8. And so again, seals 1 through 6, long pause, seal 7. There's a pause before the seventh seal. There's a pause before the seventh trumpet. And, and in these pauses, God is teaching us something. You might remember that the pause between the sixth and the seventh seal was all about the sealing of the 144,000. That, that isn't about Jehovah's Witnesses, which they claim it is. That that is designed to remind you, Christian, that you have been sealed. You have been sealed by God the Holy Spirit so that you don't need to fear these judgments that are coming upon this earth. Well, this morning we come to another pause, the pause before the seventh trumpet, and this pause is also designed to teach us something as well. Two things. First of all, the character of our Savior And secondly, the calling of the believer. This pause as we wait for the seventh and final trumpet to be blown, in other words, as we wait for the coming of the Lord Jesus and the day of judgment, this pause is designed to teach you about your Savior and about your calling as a Christian. Now you'll notice how the chapter begins, a a mighty angel comes down from heaven. And children, there's some very kind of strange imagery here, isn't there? This angel is wrapped in a cloud. He has a a rainbow over his head. His face is like the sun, and, and his legs are like pillars of fire. Now, who is this angel? One of, the, one of the common refrains that you've heard from me as we've been going through Revelation together is that we have to often compare Scripture with Scripture. The, the point is, is that as we study certain passages of the, passages of the Bible, it, it's very important and very helpful to see how other passages shed light on that particular passage. If we come across a passage that is especially difficult and you all know Revelation has a lot of those. 
it's, it's very important to look elsewhere in the Bible to, to kind of help us connect the dots, to understand what the passage is saying. And so when we do that, when, when we compare the Bible with the Bible here, I think we get a clear picture of who this angel is. First of all, there's something in the book of Daniel. Daniel chapter 7. I'm not going to ask you to turn there. But in Daniel chapter 7, Daniel sees a vision of the Son of Man. And, and you might remember that vision. It's a, it's a picture of the Messiah. And in Daniel chapter 7, verse 13, it says this. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man, and he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him, and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. The key phrase for our purpose this morning in Revelation 10 is that little phrase that he came with the clouds of heaven. Very similar to what we read here in Revelation 10. Second passage is in Ezekiel chapter 1. In Ezekiel 1, Ezekiel is given a, a vision of the glory of God. Imagine what that must have been like. In Ezekiel 1.28, it says this, Like the appearance of the rainbow that is in the cloud on the day of rain, so was the appearance of the brightness all around, such was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. The glory of God is accompanied by a rainbow, just like here in Revelation 10. Revelation 10 also tells us that this angel's face is like the sun and his legs are like pillars of fire. Both of those are, are very, very similar to the description that is given of Jesus in Revelation chapter 1. Listen to verse 15. Revelation 1, his feet were like burnished bronze refined in a furnace and his voice was like the roar of many waters in his right hand he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. Here's the point. When you compare Scripture with Scripture, when you look at Daniel 7 and Ezekiel 1 and Revelation 1, I think it's shedding light on the fact that this mighty angel in Revelation 10 is none other than Jesus Christ himself. Verse 2 then tells us that, that Jesus puts his, notice, his right foot on the sea and his left foot on the land. In the ancient world, putting your foot on something was symbolic that you had authority over whatever you put your foot on. What they would do in um, ancient military battles, the victorious army would put their feet on the necks of those they had conquered as a sign of their authority, as a sign of their victory, as a sign of their power. And so Jesus puts one foot on the sea and one foot on the land, symbolizing that he has authority over all things. He's the king over all. In addition, we are told here in Revelation 10 that his voice is like that of a roaring lion. In the Old Testament, a roaring lion is almost always symbolic of the judgment of God. And so you put all of this together and you see that, that for the Christian, now for the non-Christian, this should terrify you. But for the Christian, this should comfort you. The, the first six trumpets are terrifying. 
natural disasters, an unseen evil realm of Satan and his demons, the ravages of war, very terrifying imagery. But, but God gives us this pause in chapter 10. It's like he's letting you catch your breath. And he gives you this pause and he gives you this amazing vision of the Lord Jesus. You see, brothers and sisters, as the one who is wrapped in a cloud, we are reminded that, that his kingdom is forever. We are reminded that there is no nation, no earthly king, no earthly kingdom that will ever unseat the Lord Jesus Christ, that will ever overthrow his kingdom. As one who has a rainbow over his head, we are reminded that for us, the storm of God's wrath is over. It's over. Children, you remember that the the rainbow in the book of Genesis was a a sign to, to Noah, not only that God would never destroy the world again with a flood, but it was also a sign that the storm was over. For you, the storm of God's wrath, Christian, is over because Jesus took that storm for you. That's what we remember this Friday night. Jesus took the storm of God's wrath. He took the judgment that you deserve so that you will never, never face it. As the one whose face is like the sun and whose legs are like pillars of fire, we are reminded of of the glory and the power of Jesus. We do not serve a weak Savior. We do not serve a Savior who is wringing his hands in heaven wondering what he's going to do. And as the one who puts one foot on the sea and the other foot on the land, we are reminded that Jesus is king over all. He's king over all. You know, in the world in which we live, I need this vision. This is a dark world, isn't it? This is a dark world. A couple days ago, I I read an estimate from a a website that deals with persecuted Christians. I I read an estimate that there are 360 million Christians in the world today who suffer either high, very high, or extreme persecution and discrimination for their faith. 360 million is a lot of people. This this nation, the U.S., is a population of, I think, 330 million. Throughout the world, there are 360 million Christians suffering high persecution for their faith. Did you know that in the state of California, California is now pushing ahead with a bill that would allow public school therapists to essentially take children as young as 12 years old away from their parents. Let's say that a a 12-year-old goes to their school counselor and says to their school counselor, my parents aren't supporting my decision to transition my gender. This bill would allow that counselor to take that child without the parent's consent and place that child in an LGBTQ facility to assist that 12-year-old with their transition. 
All the while, the parents have no say. And we all know what happened this week at a PCA church school in Nashville. This world is broken. This world is broken, and because it's so broken, I, I need this vision. I need to remember who Jesus is. I need to remember what Jesus has done for me. I need to remember that, that he is in control. His one foot is on the sea and his one foot is on the land. And I need to see and remember that evil will not ultimately triumph in this world. That's why God gives us this vision. That's why God gives us this book. Not to confuse you. Not to send you running back to the Gospel of John. But he gives you this book because you need it. And I need it. Because we live in a very dark world. Now in this vision, as Jesus calls out with a, a loud voice, you'll notice that seven thunders sound. And, and, and John says, great, I'm going to write this down, what I've just seen. And all of a sudden, a voice to him says, don't do it. Don't write down what you've just seen. Now, now commentators are very confused on what this really means, but, but I think what's being pictured here is the reality of what we read in Deuteronomy 29, 29, and that is that the secret things belong to God. There are some things, aren't there, that God has chosen not to reveal to us. For example, we, we don't know when Jesus will return. We know that he will one day return. We just don't know when. But we do know that that day is coming. There's nothing you can do. There's nothing I can do to change that. That day is coming. In fact, it's pictured for us here in verse 6. You'll notice that Jesus raises his right hand to heaven and he swears that there will be no more delay. In other words, one day that seventh trumpet will blow. And there's nothing you or anyone else can do to stop that day. The seventh trumpet one day will come for everyone. Are you ready for that day? Are you ready for that day? You know, we take all kinds of precautions to prepare for the future. We spend a lot of time thinking about the future our children's education, our future retirement. We spend a lot of time thinking about these things, but the, the most important thing you can prepare yourself for is that seventh trumpet. Are you ready for that day? Have you fled to Jesus Christ, who is the only one who can, can shelter you from the wrath that will come upon the whole world one day? Now, as Christians, this, this is a comforting message for us. This broken world weighs on me. I'm tired of dealing with my own sin nature. I'm tired of seeing how God's truth is trampled upon. I'm tired of seeing all the, the wickedness and violence that goes on in our world today and the, and the things of this world that just end up being destroyed by moth and rust. Those things don't provide any lasting satisfaction. And so it's encouraging for me to know that, that Jesus is going to come back one day. 
I'm not just living for this. Um, he will take us to our eternal home and, and, and he will bring final justice. Parents, I want to encourage you this morning to be very intentional in preparing your children for that day. To be very intentional, intentional in, in teaching them what we find here in Revelation 10. Academics is important. Sports are very fun. Other activities are, are also very fun. But look, there's nothing more important that you will ever give to your children than this. Jesus Christ is the glorious reigning king. He has made an end to sin. He is forever freed from judgment all who believe in him. And one day he's going to take us to a world that is way better than this one. Teach your kids that. Model that for them. And So that's the first thing that this, this pause is meant to teach us. Jesus is king. He's reigning over all things. But then we have the calling of the believer. Here we are living in a, in a, in a world that often experiences disaster and, and violence and death. There's just the general brokenness of this world. What are we to do? What are we to do? Some Christians will say, well, there's nothing, there's not anything that we can do. Why, why would we try to make this world a better place when it's just going to hell in a handbasket? You, you've maybe heard people say before um, something like, you know, trying to make this world a better place is like polishing the brass on the Titanic. It's just going under. Why waste your time? Now, that's, that's a catchy phrase, but it's not very biblical. I, I don't think that's a biblical perspective at all. I believe that we are called both individually and as a church to make a difference in this world. We are called individually and as a church to, to impact this world for Christ. And that's what we see in the last part of this chapter as we're waiting for the seventh trumpet. What are we to do? The, the, the voice speaks from heaven and it tells John Take the scroll from the hand of the mighty angel. Now, what is this scroll? You might remember if you were here a number of weeks ago when we were back in chapter 5, there was also a scroll that was mentioned. And, and that scroll was sealed with, with seven seals, and the only one worthy to, to break the seals and open the scroll was the Lamb, the Lord Jesus Christ. Only Jesus is able and worthy to execute God's eternal plan. That was the point. We come to chapter 10, and we find another scroll, and we say, is this the same scroll? No, it's not the same scroll. Um, here's why. The Greek word that is translated scroll in verse 2 is a slightly different word than the one that is translated scroll back in chapter 5. The ESV, if you have an ESV, actually brings that out when it calls this scroll, notice, a little scroll. In other words, this scroll seems to be a, a condensed version of the scroll that is found in chapter 5. Let, let me give you an illustration that I think most of you can understand. In 1932, um, Louis Burkhoff wrote a book called Systematic Theology. Some of you may have read this book before. 
It's long been considered a, a standard work in Reformed theology. It's a very big book. I have it up here in my hand. It's about 1,000 pages. Systematic Theology, 1932. In 1938, Burkhoff wrote another book. It's called A Summary of Christian Doctrine. He wrote it primarily for high school students. And it's a much smaller book. As you can see, it's only about 150 pages. Now, everything that's in this little book is also in the bigger book. But not everything that's in the bigger book is in the little book. My point, I don't usually use visual illustrations, but my point is that I think we have the same thing here. You have the scroll in chapter 5, which contains everything that's part of God's eternal plan, like Burkhoff's big book, in a sense. And among the things that are in that big book are things that we are simply not meant to know. For example, the the day of Jesus' return. We don't know when Jesus will return. We don't know who's going to win the World Series this year. We don't don't know the day of our death. But the little scroll here in chapter 10 contains only the things that God intends us to know. A moment ago I quoted to you a portion of Deuteronomy 29. Here's the rest of the verse, or here's the entire verse. The secret things belong to the Lord our God. But the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever that we may do all the words of the law. This little scroll contains those things that God desires us to know. Those things he desires us to believe and the way he wants us to live for him. That's what this little scroll is. God's revelation to his people. And so John goes up to this mighty angel whom we have identified as Jesus. And and Jesus says to John, take the scroll and eat it. That's what John does. He takes the book. He puts it in his mouth. And he eats it. Now that's weird. Children, have you ever eaten a book before? I would highly encourage you never to eat books. But that's what John does. Now remember, Revelation is filled with symbolism. Symbolism that is designed to teach us important truths. And I think as John eats this book, which is the book of God's revealed will for us, as he eats this book, we are being told two things. Number one, we are told that we are to appropriate God's word for ourselves. As John takes the little scroll and eats it, it's a symbol to us that we are to take God's word into our lives and inwardly digest it for ourselves. You see, it's not sufficient to just have head knowledge. For example, it's not sufficient just to believe that Jesus is the Savior. It's it's not sufficient just to know that 2,000 years ago he died on a Roman cross and then three days later he rose from the dead. You and I must personally embrace him as our Lord and Savior. It's not sufficient just to know facts about the Bible. 66 books, 39 in the Old Testament, 27 in the New Testament. 
It's not sufficient just to have our doctrine lined up. The five solas, the five points of Calvinism, covenant theology, all good things, all biblical things. But we must take the word of God to heart and we must live it. We must live out the word of God. Remember, the word of God is powerful. Hebrews 4 says that it is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. Psalm 19 tells us that, that the word of God revives our souls. It makes us wise. It gives us joy. It enlightens our eyes. Paul says something very interesting in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18. He says, we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. Paul says we are to behold the glory of the Lord. Where do we do that? We do that in this book. It is here where we see the glory of God. It is here where we come face to face with his majesty and his power and his grace and his mercy. Paul's point in 2 Corinthians 3 is that it is as we read and study the word of God, as we behold the glory of God in this book, Paul says we are transformed more and more into the image of Christ. Isn't that what we want as Christians? To be more like Jesus? It's in this book that we behold his glory. And it's in this book and through this book and by his Holy Spirit that we are transformed more and more into the image of Christ. And so Christians, you're waiting for the seventh trumpet to blow. As you're waiting for that great day, that that wonderful day that we're all waiting for. We don't sit by idly and do nothing. Instead, we take the book of God's revealed will and we eat it, we digest it, we take it to ourselves and we live it out. And that leads to the second thing that John is telling us here, that that by eating this book, we are told that we are to be Christ's witnesses to this world. There's an evangelistic aspect, isn't there, to the transforming power of God in our lives. 2 Corinthians 3, again, says that that we are transformed more and more into the image of Christ. That's our desire, that the world would see Jesus in us. I mentioned this, um, I think it was last Sunday night. Wouldn't it be great if the world were to see in us something different than they see in the rest of the world? I'm not saying in a, in a self-righteous way, not, not in a we're better than you are kind of way, but isn't that what we want? The world to see that we live differently. Our priorities are different. Wouldn't it be great if, if someone were to say to you, Why do you love your wife like that? Why do you raise your children like that? Why do you do business that way? Why are you different than the other kids at school? 
And it's then that we tell them about Jesus. And so as we wait for the seventh trumpet to blow, as we anticipate that great day when Jesus will come in power and glory, we're not to sit by idly. We are, first of all, to remember who Jesus is. He's the king. He's sovereign. He's working all things to his appointed end. And and we are to be people of this book. Not just up here, but also in here. We have a rich, rich theological heritage. We have a rich, rich doctrinal history. The doctrines of grace, the five points of Calvinism, whatever you want to call them, the five solas, covenant theology, Heidelberg Catechism, all that stuff. Such a rich theological heritage. But we're called to live it out. We're called to let it impact the way that we live and and treat others. That's how we live as we wait for that trumpet to blow. Finally, notice what happens when John eats this scroll. He eats it, and at first he goes, you know, this is really sweet. This tastes pretty good. But then it hits his stomach, and he says, I'm I'm not feeling so great. Why is the word of God both sweet and bitter? Well, first of all, if you're a Christian, I I don't need to spend a lot of time telling you about how the Bible is sweet. You, You know it. The Spirit has worked that on your heart. The good news of what Jesus has done for us is the, is the sweetest message we will ever know. And I, I pray that every one of us here in this room, you know, everyone watching this, I, I pray that we reflect on this often. I pray that we come to church on Sunday not to check a box, not to get your district elder off your case. But I pray that we come to church every Sunday longing, truly longing to hear this message. Because look, to, to meditate and to reflect on the gospel changes you. And again, there's no sweeter message. At the same time, though, there's also a certain bitterness that is involved in the Christian life. There's the pain of, of an unbelieving spouse or friend or family member. There's the pain of persecution that we can expect, hostility that we can expect in this life. That's bitter. There's the pain of family or friends who want nothing to do with our Savior. There's the pain of looking at a world that is so incredibly broken and wonder, when is this going to end? Yeah, there's a wonderful sweetness to the Christian life. But you know and I know that there is a bitterness as well. The good news is that this bitterness won't last forever. This bitterness will be gone one day. There was a man named William Cooper who was an 18th century English hymn writer. 
he was, um, he was really good friends with John Newton. John Newton wrote Amazing Grace. William Cooper, um, he, he certainly knew the sweetness of the gospel. He wrote one of the songs that we sung earlier, There is a Fountain Filled with Blood. And, and Cooper knew, surely from his own experiential background, he, he knew that sinners plunged beneath the flood lose all their guilty stains. Cooper knew that. He wrote the hymn. At the same time, though, Cooper also suffered from frequent bouts of depression and anxiety all throughout his life. And it's interesting, too, that, that you find often that uh, many, many men and women in church history have suffered depression and anxiety. Charles Spurgeon, for example, Martin Luther, for example, were, were men who went through deep periods of depression. It's as if the, the closer you get to hell, the spiritual battle that rages on, the, the worse it is. Cooper was like that. Cooper went through life. In fact, he was uh, at one point uh, sent to an insane asylum because they thought he was crazy. They thought he had mental issues. But again, this, this is often what happens for the Christian. This life is bitter. So Cooper went through periods of, of, of depression, anxiety. And, and out of this, out of his experience, he wrote another hymn. You may have heard it before. It's God moves in a mysterious way. And near the end of that hymn, he writes this word. His purposes will ripen fast, unfolding every hour. The bud may have a bitter taste, but sweet will be the flower. Christian life may, like Cooper, be bitter for you at times. It may be incredibly difficult. But out of that bitter bud will one day come a sweet, sweet flower. Our Savior has freed us from the penalty of sin. He is freeing us from the power of sin. And one day, he will free us forever from the presence of sin. One day that seventh trumpet will blow. And all the bitterness will be gone. What a wonderful day that will be. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks and praise this morning for giving us this book, giving us your word. We thank you, Lord, that as we wait for that final trumpet, that you give us very careful instruction so that we may always know who Jesus is and so that we may know how you desire us to live. Lord, life is bitter at times, but we know there is coming a sweet flower and the Lord Jesus will return. And sin and pain and bitterness and death will be no more. Help us, Lord, now, whether we are young or old. Help us to live for you. Help us to live out the great truths that we believe. 